This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Joby's making inroads into New York City. And a drone flight halts a nationally televised NFL game. The AOPA Air Safety Institute leases its annual accident report. And the PAFI fuel process is still alive. Finally, David, Gamma, the numbers are out. We'll talk about them. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, Joe Costanza is the guest. Yes. Many people might not know Joe, but they probably know his handle on Instagram and YouTube and all that, which is bananas with with how many s's did he put on bananas plural plus eight more s's okay (laughs) so i heard a story once and i i don't know if this is true that that's the username that's the handle whatever they call it because he just kept adding s's until he could find one that was available that sounds about right yeah there there are several (laughs) more with less s's yeah so make sure you keep adding s's until you get to joe and you know he's got to tell us a lot about flying in his piper j3 but when he does still photography he's got some bad looking nikon gear yeah you can tell he's yeah he's definitely spent some money on gear i mean the drone stuff that he gets the air-to-air with drones is fantastic you know and he's doing like He's doing these slips over the top of the drones. And so, yeah, his, his stuff is very cool. Definitely worth checking out. And, he, and he's, he's pioneered some uh, some different types of mounts and all, which are really neat. It feels like you're going along on a flight with Joe when he yeah. flies. I really do like it. So he's going to be a yep. great guest. Yep, absolutely. Okay, but uh, we'll get to him in a few minutes. First, let's talk about Joby in New York City. Now, this is something that we talk about all the time, which is eVTOLs. And are they going to be accepted in urban areas and everything else? And so now we're just starting to see the very beginnings of the inroads there because Joby and Volocopter both actually flew in New York City recently. And now they're working with the government there to try and develop some infrastructure at the downtown heliports. Right. And on November the 12th, so this is a couple of weeks ago, Joby did stake a claim to the first eVTOL over uh, New York City. And mm-hmm. as a reminder, you know, we had that Joby story on the front page, uh, the cover, rather, of um, APA Pilot Magazine a few months ago. Yeah. It's uh, six electric motors, you know, power that. And, and, and it's quiet. That's the thing. When you're yeah, going in this quiet. type of environment, you know, that's what we're trying to pick because we already have helicopters that go to and from. Yeah. But the device is supposed to carry four riders and one pilot. Zero operating emissions, that's a key thing, and a radically lower acoustic sound print. So Hmm. interesting. Yeah. And I guess from New York, that's important. I mean, we hear about pressure from residents and lawmakers in that area with all the helicopter traffic. It's interesting. I mean, we'll have to see what the sort of public reaction to this is, though, because obviously there's... um, you know, you're not talking about a revolutionary technology when you're talking about operating from the exact infrastructure that already exists. So it's right, just right. sort of, you know, an incremental thing. It's going to take a lot more to kind of revolutionize transportation around the city because with only, you know, a couple of heliports, you're still really limited on capacity. So, yeah, I, I but I guess I got to start somewhere, right? Right. And we actually, if we can remind our listeners that we talked with Paul Bertarelli, uh, editor emeritus from AvWeb, last episode. Mm-hmm. He was projecting into the future a little bit about some of the EV tolls. 
And uh, if I recall, Paul said, yes, there's going to be a place for them, but it's just not going to be as widespread as a lot of the investors think. Yeah. Price is going to be one issue. Public acceptance is going to be another. But like any new technology, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. Got to start somewhere, right? And you teased during the tease that uh, Joby wasn't the only company yeah. that flew over New York City. Yeah, yeah. Volocopter was also there, which, of course, that's flown in Oshkosh. So uh, a lot of people have seen that. But, yeah, they're, they're kind of going neck and neck, aren't they, kind of at the same time? And I know Volocopter, and in fact, Graham Warwick mentions this in his story for uh, Avweek, which is a good one, that, uh, you know, they're trying to do the Paris Olympics to sort of raise awareness there, I think, publicly about inner city transportation. So, yeah, it's a race. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick one uh, little tidbit out of uh, Sylvia Horn's story. Uh, good job on the story, by the way, Sylvia. She mentions that Joby Aircraft registered the equivalent of 45.2 A-weighted decibels flying overhead at 1,640 feet. Now, I don't know what a A-weighted decibel is. Yeah, I don't either. But, but 45.2 decibels. But at uh, 1,600 feet? 1,640 feet. So uh, I, wonder what it, I wonder what like a 172 is, because that's that's relatively high. It is, it yeah. is. But she, she says it's quieter than a typical conversation. Well, a typical band, yeah. when you go to listen to a band, is, is about 100 decibels. Oh, yeah, that's like, yeah, that's covering so, your eardrums sort of stuff. Yeah. So if you're looking at half of that. Yeah. So I, I'm just trying to figure out a way to quantify. Yeah, I mean, what, it's definitely quieter in person. But yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, quieter than the helicopter. But it, it, I'd be curious to know what the number is like. When you're on the same street as one that's at a heliport, you know, it's like that's the measure, really. And, you know, in New York and in New York City, they got a lot of tall buildings. And mm -hmm. so some of that sound does echo and that's reverberate right. yeah. down on the ground level and maybe bounce back up. So, yeah, interesting acoustics. But that is one reason why you're looking at electric vertical takeoff and landing in that area to kind of quiet it down a little bit. And I do see yeah. that that might be an interesting technology to some of the more sensitive uh, airports that you were mentioning a little while ago mm -hmm. that, that, and Paul mentioned that a couple of weeks ago too. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So a great example of public acceptance of unmanned aircraft systems and eVTOL and all that sort of thing is what happened recently at the Thursday night NFL game. And you were there. Yeah. This was a game between the Ravens and the Bengals, I think it was. Right. Cincinnati Bengals. And yep. MT&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. A lot of folks who listen know that I cover some NFL football for UPI, the wire service, and I'm not working at AOPA. And so, you know, I don't know what the heck was going on. The game stopped. And mm -hmm. like I'm on the sidelines doing some pictures of Joe Burrows, and yeah. he had gotten hurt. So he's like on the sidelines, and he's like looking up. And and I started looking up and I saw a reflection of the of the red lights on the field. Hmm. Like what you would typically have a nav light on an airplane. Yeah. Well, drones yeah. have those has those too. When you're flying at night, you have to have them on there. Uh, recognition lights. And I saw like a red dot on the field. I didn't see the green because I guess it kind of, you know, it kind of blended into the green grass, which is natural, yeah. natural grass on that stadium and artificial around the outside of the stadium. But yeah, it halted the game. And this is like a national TV, you know, broadcast game. And so, yeah. you know, millions of people saw this, which is not good, in my opinion, for no. drone operators. No. no, no. And in fact, Flying has a story about this. And it's it's pretty lengthy. And he, essentially what he says is that they did actually find the person uh, no who doubt. was operating the drone. And he was completely clueless about the restrictions. Oh, like, please tell me that's not the case. No, it's like, oh, what do you mean I can't fly it over a game in a stadium full of people? Like, oh, no. I mean, how do you even? I, oh, this is a problem, right? Well, it is. It's an education problem because, yeah. you know, as private pilots, uh, we all know that you need to steer clear of stadiums when they have a TFR. Now, typically, that stadium, Arabian Stadium, would not have a Thursday night TFR over it, right. but it did. Yeah, And so, you know, you've got lateral boundaries and you've got vertical boundaries that you have to respect. Yeah. So it look, looks bad for drone operators. Yeah. And not to mention, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'd have to look at the chart to know exactly. It's right on the edge, I think, of the surface class B for BWI. Uh, so. For Baltimore. Sure. Yeah. And, and the problem also is that, you know, with these drone incursions, you, with, that's something else that, that pilots have to be aware of. Typically when you're Going on a on a cross country flight, like when I go, I do a pre flight planning, and I know you use Garmin, I use ForeFlight. Nonetheless, mm -hmm. 
I, I jump into the NOTAMs real quick for the local airports, and, and they will typically have a NOTAM for a planned drone flight. If there's a drone flight nearby, there'll be a time stamp on where, you know, where it is and when it's active. Yeah. So not knowing that, you know, we're flying, hoping that people know the rules. Uh, And then when they don't, that just gives you you uneasy. Yeah. It makes you uneasy, gives you more ammunition to like really be aware of what's going on around you. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, so um, speaking of mishaps, the annual accident report has been released, the AOPA Air Safety Institute Accident Report. And now normally, of course, we would call that the Joseph T. Nall Report. That's how most people know it. And it has been renamed this year in honor of our colleague and friend, uh, Richard McSpadden. So from henceforth, will be known as the Richard G. McSpadden Report, which I think is an awesome tribute. Yes. Yeah, very well deserved. And this covers the calendar year of 2021. So reminding our listeners that it's a couple of years behind because of the way the the results are tabulated. Yeah, the, why it takes them so long. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, I mean, overall, I think really good news. I mean, in general, the, the top line is the accident rate is down. I mean, that's that's great news. The rate is down because we flew more hours. Yeah. So the rate is down now somewhat compensating for the fact that the actual number of total accidents slightly rose yes. from 1,050 in 2020 to 1,124 in 2021. But we're looking at 4 million additional flight hours compared to that previous year. Wow. That's a lot. That's significant. Yeah. So what happened is the actual rate went from 4.69 in 2022 to 4.28 in 2021. Okay. And that's, that's a, a significant drop. Yeah, that's great. And you know, it's, it is. they do like a 10 year trend essentially. And boy, it's really nice to see that because like in 2012, the rate was 5.75 and now we're down to 4.28. So that's a nice drop. That is, that is. And how do you attribute some of that? Do you attribute it more to awareness or more to some of the technology or more to some of the excellent training that folks can get uh, not only at AOPA <laughs> yeah. and the Air Safety Institute, but elsewhere on YouTube and, and other training sources? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's probably a combination of stuff. We've gotten a lot more. I, one thing I have noticed about aviation safety and training in general is we're starting to become a lot more dependent on data. I think it used to be we're making the switch from like kind of old wives' tales and sort of like, you know, wisdom handed down to like, hey, let's look at what's actually going on out there and start to figure out how to fix it. And that, I think, is paying off a little bit. So, you know, as an example, like the air safety team has put in out stuff that's based on like takeoff accidents, which we largely ignored previously. Yeah. I mean, we would do, you know, departure stalls, but it's like, oh, okay, you did one stall, you're done, and that's fine. And now it's like, we see that that's a major cause of accidents and something we really need to worry about. Well, it is. Actually, if you pull the data from, from 2021 and look at it the way it's parsed out, there were 23 fatalities out of 119 takeoff accidents, Yeah, which is about a fourth, you know, or fifth. It's about a fifth, I guess. My math's not great. But one out of five accidents are fatal yeah. accidents. So that's significant. But, you know, yeah. the landing accidents... In the in the McSpadden report, are nine fatal accidents out of two hundred and ninety yeah. landing accidents. Yeah, I've I you know I I always think if I can just land and take off without screwing it up, and uh-huh. you know and <laughs> right? and not stall while I'm in the pattern or something, you go a huge way towards avoiding your accident risk. Yeah, I mean two hundred and ninety accidents. So I mean, what is that? That's like a quarter, a third of all accidents or or landing accidents. But I think a lot of those are going to be, you know, typical landed too long. Mm -hmm. It was a wet runway uh, where the airplane gets beat up a little bit. Hopefully the occupants are not, you know, so badly hurt. You know, typical, I mean, you you just bought a tailwheel airplane. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having the tailwheel get away from you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Probably a good bit amount of. Of landings like that. Or... Yeah. And you know what? The other thing that I think we can't lose sight of is that like, these are accidents. I mean, they live, they rise to the level of accident, not incident. Yeah, you have to report yeah. them. You have to report them. It's X number of dollars of value, right? Yeah. And I was just looking in the incident database. The FAA has like a daily incident database that doesn't, stuff that doesn't reach the level of an accident, but is still stuff that's going on out there. And it's like every day, that's like people going off the side of the runway and hitting a sign or like, Going into a ditch or, yeah, ground loops or 
whatever. I mean, it just happens all the time. So yeah, major, major cause of accidents. But you're right. Like we don't spend a ton of time talking about them because there aren't that many fatals. Right. Well, which is good. That's a good yeah. thing. I, I like yeah. that. Um, the other thing about takeoff accidents, you're taking off and it's, you know, the airplanes, a lot of times full of fuel. Yeah. And so if you have a, an accident and there and, and a fire ensues, there's going to most likely be a fatality. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it has to do with how the airplane is configured. But what about these maneuvering accidents, Ian? I looked yeah. at that, that one chart, 1.11, the major types of accidents or non-commercial fixed wing and maneuvering, we're looking at 31 fatalities out of 48 accidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bad. That's significant. Yeah. So you and I were talking about this before the show. What would be a maneuvering accident? It was like control flight into terrain or into a guy wire? Like we saw yeah. we saw a Mooney end up uh, in, a, in an electrical power grid. Yeah. No injuries, right yeah, by right. the way. I know, that's amazing. So, yeah, you know, some of these are kind of hard and you got to go into the actual reports because... Out of all those, I think the report says that there are 23 of those, 23 were stall or loss of control. 18 of those oh. were fatal. So, okay. And I have looked into some of this before in, in some of the ASI reports. And, and I think, as I recall, you know, I think people that people are afraid to go out and practice stalls, right? They get a little nervous when they're with an instructor and everything. Right. By and large, these are inadvertent stalls. These are not happening during training. So... So that's an issue. The second biggest category is people hitting wires, like you said, structures or terrain. So about half of those are fatal. Yeah. Aerobatics, there are accidents during aerobatics. Those are fatal. That makes yeah. sense. Because a lot of those are low to the deck. Yeah. Uh, even in the aerobatic, uh, whether it's during competition or just during practice in the aerobatic yeah. box, you're oftentimes getting very low to the, to yeah. the lowest deck at, at you, that you have set. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I want to just draw a quick attention to is is mechanical problems because try as we can to, you know, improve our skills and read and, you know, take our, our sort of dumb self out of the equation. It's like there are still mechanical problems. The biggest one of those is power plant failures. So again, you got to consider that there's a larger issue here, which is power plants will fail. Somebody will land in a field and that's not an accident. You know, if the airplane doesn't flip over or nothing happens, it's like, that never gets reported to the NTSB, right? However, there were 57 power plant problems that led to accidents, and six of those were fatal. So it's that's happening pretty often, yeah. When it rose to that level, it's uh, significant. And six out of almost 60 is 10% fatality yeah. rate. So that's not, not as high as other categories, but it's still pretty high. Well, you're right. Higher, I suppose, than overall. Yeah, yeah. The other one that's interesting about that that I really want to go in and read all these reports is airframe. There were 22 accidents related to airframe problems, three of those fatal. So, Well, what could that be, like uh, flutter? or Uh, It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, structural failure or something? I don't know. So, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so you can see you can really nerd out on this stuff and, yeah, be in it forever. Well, it's a good dive. Absolutely. It's a good deep dive into that um, Richard G. McSpadden report, and it's the 33rd, and it's updated regularly. So folks can get a, a very good picture at what the latest trends are. The one thing that I would say that led to the overall lowering of that accident rate, in my opinion, is some of the technology that we do have. It's come aboard in the last 10 years. You got angle of attack indicators. We often fly with um, a portable iPad or iPad mini. And whether you have Garmin or ForeFlight or something else, you typically you can see where the obstacles are. Mm, yeah. And there are a lot of safety items that we might have now these days in the last 10 years that we didn't have previously. So maybe some of that is helping to lower it as well as awareness and training. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Good point. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, let's talk about fuel. We always have to do this when news comes out because it's so important. If you listen to the Bertarelli interview, you heard Paul's take on what's going on with Paffy. Right, right. But there is a bit of news on that, which is that one of the candidate fuels has passed it out of initial testing. That's the VP... VP Racing, Lyndon Bissell, right. Yep. How do you pronounce it, Lydell? No, it's Ly- uh, Lyondell. Yeah, the VP Racing Lyondell, yep, that's right. So they have they passed their initial 150-hour engine durability phase. Yay. Which I guess takes them to full-scale testing. First of all, Ian, before you even get into it, let me, let's remind 
our listeners what PAFI is. And we yeah. you went really quick on some of this. Yeah. It's the Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative, and that has been going on since before I joined AOPA in 2015. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so what is the – give us the overall look at what is – what PAFI really is. Okay, so yeah, it gets confusing because, you know, now we're talking a lot about Eagle. Eagle is a, I would say, I mean, if I had to characterize Eagle, it's more of a consortium of leaders in the industry that are working towards the common goal of getting lead out of AFGAS, okay? Yeah, okay. PAFI is a highly structured and deliberate testing process for these fuels, Government-based, generally. Yes, the exactly. FAA. Right. FAA run. Right. And in fact, one interesting bit in, I suppose, background about this is that although this is a PAFI fuel, they're naming the manufacturer. And previous iterations of PAFI were completely blind to the public. Oh, yeah. Like a blind taste test. Yeah. Well, no. So yeah. I, we didn't know who the yeah. we didn't know the two companies were. Yeah. We had right. no idea who was in it, how they were doing or anything else. So right. the fact that they're even that they're being more transparent about it at this process is a is a big step forward, I'll say. I agree. And then let's name the fuel is is sort of commonly known as UL100E, like Echo. Hmm. And we recently talked about the GAMI 100 yeah. unleaded yeah fuel so that would be probably g100 ul yeah yeah right right <laughs> so you got g and you got e yeah and we, we know we have swift fuels which yeah, is 94 and they're working, working yeah. to get 100 yeah. octane for the bigger engines and then there's a yet a fourth player that still to me is yeah. a secret you yeah. know at least yeah and what this means essentially is, I mean, it's a good news. It means they're going to go test this thing in airplanes. Yeah. What they're working towards with PAFI is an ASTM standard. Okay. So ASTM being that, you know, international standards group that it's like everybody says, okay, yeah, we, as industry, we agree this is the standard and we all manufacture the standard. Okay. I guess that's important because hopefully that will allow, once the standard is set, for a more widespread and easier certification process, you know, kind of for all of us. Because one of the challenges okay. of the GAMI process has been that they they elected not to go through PAFI, which means they right. had STC approvals. And test it on their own, in yeah. their own facility, with their yeah. own engine test bed yeah. out there, which they have a Cirrus SR22 engine outside in a really interesting test environment. And they've just been running the heck out of that engine yeah. all the time. So now you mentioned earlier... That uh, the PAFI process for this for the 100E Echo fuel mm -hmm. passed 150 hours. Yeah. So the next stage is a full scale engine and airframe testing stage, and that consists of 10 engines and eight aircraft, and it's expected to be completed in 12 to 18 months. So yeah. that, was, that was something you started to explain to us a few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's good. Thanks for wrapping that up. Yeah, and I know people complain about, wow, this takes forever. But I mean, this is a, if you think about any sort of engineering test program, it's like they are lengthy and it's because they're trying to suss out problems in the process. And so that has to be, like I said, very predictable, deliberate. It's like, and so it takes time, I think, to go through some of these processes. It does. It does. And also to add a little fuel to the fire here, a little pun intended, when Paul Bertarelli was with us last episode, he mentioned the story coming out of the University of North Dakota, mm -hmm. where yeah. the Swift fuels were being tested. And they had they had about 45,000 hours. Was, did I Something read that right? Something like that, or 25,000, or some massive amount of time. Yeah. And they discovered a problem. Potential. So they say. Right. So they say. And so they and say. If you, yeah. If you listen to uh, Ask the MPs, Mike Bush is very suspect of what they found. They did set up a testing protocol, but the testing protocol might not have been what Mike Bush would have set up. Yeah. And, and, to, and to his mind, they were exactly, they were monitoring. I'd say it was a monitoring protocol. And what they were monitoring, he feels like, was an improper measure basically okay so okay. um so there are still questions lots of questions about how that fuel was used at that university yes, and the way that so. they tracked it i think so yeah okay yeah. well that that would be good because we as aviation consumers who consume avgas we want to know more and we want to have more testing and we want to have more proven testing so yep. it sounds like the gauntlet has been thrown down for paffy and they are moving ahead with yeah. with 100e 
fuel and we've got a year to year and a half to wait. Yeah, it's a positive thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Hey, let's get through the okay. gamma numbers. We gotta Speaking talk about positive yes, things. Positive. We, we gotta, gotta talk wrap about this gamma. Up. Okay. Okay. Hey, long story short, good news. Yep, that's long story short. Okay, everyone. See you next time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so so no, uh, long story short, yes, it is very good news. The gamma report is out, the third quarter report, and it's really positive across the board. There's an eleven point nine percent increase in piston airplane sales deliveries worldwide. Turboprop deliveries increased fourteen point six percent compared to the same quarter a year ago. And, you know, it's interesting that across the board, even helicopters are up. That's something that we've talked about a couple of times that we've, we've worried about the helicopter market. Mm-hmm. So that's up. With that, single-engine aircrafts lead the way again. Yeah. And Cirrus is way out of in front in the single-engine category. So in a way, same old, same old, but in a positive yeah. way. Yeah, so I it's it is hard to say. You know, we talk about supply chain every time when we talk about gamma over the past couple of years, and so we have to say again, it's hard to say how much of this is an opening up of supply chain for sort of pre, you know, like long ago demand levels. that's yeah just now being fulfilled, and how much is kind of new demand. But hey, we'll take it, right? I mean, Cirrus twenty three percent. Like, I keep thinking, that's okay, dominant. they're going to level off sometime, but it's like, man, they just keep going. It's like, where are they finding these leads? It's fantastic. And the SF Vision Jet, I mean, that's climbing in popularity with a 15% increase yeah. in demand and, and deliveries. That's amazing. So, yeah. uh, you know, compared to the year before now, we often talk about Textron and Piper. Piper is another uh, prolific deliverer of piston aircraft mm-hmm. they announced the sale of about 90 aircraft recently so that's really good so piper is, is still strong and then we have a few that are are surprising to us we've talked a little bit and published a little bit about technum aircraft mm-hmm. they're still having strong sales they posted a 22 percent increase in total airframes uh, versus yeah, last year great. A diamond aircraft is still a diamond in the rough, you know, if you want to say. They've delivered <laughs> 195 aircraft. That's a 15% compared increase compared to the year before. And and the numbers keep stacking up. So yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's great all around. It's great to see. We'll hit the top sometime soon, maybe. We'll see. Uh, maybe as, as new deliveries are finally getting made and bigger numbers, you're seeing, I think, a little bit of easing on the used market. We see that. I've seen a couple of like price drops for, you know, kind of late model Cirrus and things like that. So yeah, it's all good. It's good news. Well, speaking of the used market and uh, before we wrap up and, and, and head towards the next episode, Ian, you are now an aircraft owner again. Yeah. Tell the loyal Hangar Talk listeners the latest news. So I have my dream airplane, which is, I I have to like give a caveat every time I say that because I feel kind of silly saying it, but uh, J3 Cub is my dream airplane and it has been for 25 years and I've, I've got one finally found one online, did the pre-buy, went through the whole process, you know, spent many nights waking up at three in the morning thinking, what the heck am I doing? Uh, (laughs) and, uh, but flew at home yesterday, had a great time, flies beautifully. So had a terrible, I was telling you, I had a terrible takeoff and terrible landing, but that's okay. It is okay. Can only get better from here. That's um, right. You set the, <laughs> the new low bar. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's outstanding. So now uh, you've got yeah. a, a J3 cup. What year is it now? It's a 1940. A 1940. And what kind of engine do we have? It's got an A75, so uh-huh. 75 horse. Yeah. Obviously fixed pitch and electrical system absent. Nothing. Nothing. Okay. So you're looking at doing some grassroots flying around that Chesapeake Bay area yeah. and maybe some grass strips and maybe some pretty sunset flights, that kind of thing. Yeah, you got it. You know, I as I thought about it, it's like there is a club in formation here. I thought, okay, we could do the club thing. You could get kind of a traveling airplane. Otherwise, you know, the thing with airplanes is I feel like you got to go way up to get a traveling airplane. So okay. like a Bonanza 210, yeah. you know, really nice 182. And if you're not going to do that, you want fun. And it's like, if you're going to do fun to me, it's like you go all the way down. Okay. You, know, you go to the basics. So, yeah. um, hand propping that bad boy. Yeah. What, tell Wood me prop, a, yeah. a future episode. I might want to ask you how, what your hand prop technique is because 
I know uh, <laughs> people have different ways of doing that, but yeah. you've got to do yep. it safely, and you got to yep. somehow figure out how to how to secure the aircraft yep. while you're cranking it. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't bother me so much. I When I was younger, I spent a summer flying my Uncle J3, and so I had a lot of experience hand propping. And I guess because I did it when I was younger, I don't, I'm not so, you know, it's fine, used to it. But yeah, you definitely, you know, you got to follow the same procedure every time. You get There's a few things you have to do, and it's like to keep yourself safe. And so, yeah, it's definitely, there's a technique, no question. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, congrats from Thanks. me and I'm sure from all of our listeners. Thank you. And what a great segue to introduce yeah. Joe Costanza, who has a 41, 1941 J3, yes. right? Yeah, he has really nice wheel pants. I'm jealous of his wheel pants. My name is Joe Costanza. Uh, some of you may know me as Bananas on Instagram. We're at my hangar uh, with my uh, 1941 Cub at the Flying W Airport in Medford, New Jersey. I got into flying pretty, I think pretty much the way most people get into flying when you're a little kid. Uh, an airplane flies overhead and you see it and you're just kind of uh, intrigued by it. So I, I bugged my father. We used to always drive up and down the turnpike to go visit my uh, grandmother. Uh, in Jersey City and we always drove by Newark Airport and I always saw that the airplanes and I knew pretty much right then and there that I wanted to uh, fly professionally uh, and, and fly airliners. So I did what most, most kids did. I just took a trip to the local airport which was uh, a Lair uh, Airport in uh, Monmouth, New Jersey which now it's called uh, Monmouth Executive Airport, KBLM. Um, I, I went there with my father and I was just walking around the ramp. Back then you could just walk around the ramp and uh, a gentleman came out and introduced himself. Uh, his name was Gary. He owned Garrett Aviation, which was a flight school, but they also uh, towed banners over the Jersey Shore in the summer. And um, at the time, I think I was 15, 16, and he said, hey, if you're interested in taking flying lessons, why don't you come set up the banners in the field? For every hour you work, we'll give you a half an hour towards flight training back in the summer of 95, 96. Uh, so I guess uh, the rest the rest is history. I um, did that for two summers. Uh, I ended up soloing around my 16th birthday, got my license there soon after, and then just pursued aviation professionally. I flight instructed for a couple years and then got hired flying a Saab 340 for a commuter airline and then in Embraer, and now I'm on the uh, Airbus A320. I'm a captain on that. And the reason why I chose the Cub is because it is the complete opposite of, uh, of what I thought I, I wanted to do growing up. I think most people, when they go through flight training, they start flying the airplanes and they want to fly you know, glass cockpits, they want to go faster, they want to fly a more complex airplane. Uh, and then you kind of get away from the basic stick and rudder flying, which is uh, the epitome of what a Cub is. So for work, it's, it's a great job, but it's a lot of button pushing, a lot of staring out the window, uh, a lot of checklists, which are important, obviously. Um, but the Cub is just, there's no electrical system on it, and it's just flying low and slow over, over the countryside. No radio, uh, all stick and rudder. You're constantly using your you know, left hand on the throttle, your feet for the rudder, right hand in the stick. It's, it's constant flying, whereas the Airbus, you're, you're more managing it. You're kind of just pushing buttons. Uh, you don't use the rudder at all. Uh, it's got auto thrust. It's got a really, really complex um, autopilot. So the Cub is really everything that airline flying isn't. So that's why I, uh, I chose the Cub because it's uh, it's kind of a throwback to the, the golden age of aviation. So why why the whole Instagram thing? I see all the fancy cameras, the big boy lenses. Talk to me about that a little bit. So um, Instagram is kind of a, a weird. People have so many different reasons why they they do social media or Instagram. Um, I feel like a lot of it is self-promotion, which is totally fine if that's what people want to push. But for me, it's really just about showing or promoting a side of aviation that a lot of people um, aren't familiar with or didn't know was, was possible. I think people are, are kind of shocked when I tell them how inexpensive it is to acquire a Cub and operate a Cub. And a lot of people assume that you know tail draggers are a thing of the past and you can't, you can't, you're not allowed to fly around certain airspace with, without ADS-B. Um, so really, it's just putting stuff out there uh, with the intent or the hope that somebody could just see the video and you know maybe it'll pique their interest and they'll they'll click on the, on the video, 
maybe go on my profile and learn a little bit about that type of flying or learn about the Cub and uh, hopefully it gets them to be a little bit more proactive to uh, you know, stop, stop dreaming, start doing type thing. So they see it out on social media and then they go out and, and say, hey, if this guy can do it and if he can achieve it, then I could go out and, and get a Cub and do the same thing. And, and I do a lot of the videos and stuff because it's just, it's aesthetically, it's really, really pleasing uh, and it's pretty and it's cool because some of the videos with the early morning stuff, it just, I feel like it, it kind of takes you back could be a, a farm field in the you know 1940s where, where the cub was so I just you know I, I kind of have fun with it I like it I like doing it because I like the art of uh, taking the video I like to edit but but mostly it's just to get the stuff out there and it hopefully grabs someone's interest and they can kind of pursue it like like I did do you have any stories of people that say hey you know your page got me interested and in yeah flying, so uh, so funny funny story um, when I first got the hanger and I started posting a little bit more uh, consistently on Instagram and which is kind of funny to begin with because it initially I just had my close friends and family on Instagram and I kind of had thrown around the idea of just posting airplane stuff and I kind of thought people would be annoyed or they'd be like oh this is you know enough with the airplane stuff but I said the heck with it and I just kept posting and I met, somebody reached out to me by the name of Chris and he's like, hey, I've been interested in, in airplanes. I live right by the Flying W. I've seen you fly over my house. Would you mind if I, if I came by? He rolled in with his motorcycle and uh, he, you know, we met and we actually became really good friends and he bought a 19, he's gonna, he's gonna be angry with me, but it's either 1946 or 47 uh, Luscom 8E, which is parked right around the corner. And uh, we'll go out flying early mornings together. We'll go on camping trips together. He is the first person that I gave a tailwheel endorsement to. So it's been pretty cool. So uh, yeah, I think social media in that regard is good because without social media, he wouldn't have, I mean, I'm sure he would have gotten his license, but I was able to, to become good friends with him and give him his uh, tailwheel endorsement. What's a typical flight like for you and the Piper? So a typical flight for me is uh, early morning with really, really never uh, a mission, never really a goal. It's just get out early, get up, take off, and then just kind of bounce around. There's, there's three grass strips here. There's um, Allen's grass strip, Pemberton, and uh, Red Wing. And they're, they're pretty quiet uh, all throughout the day, but especially in the mornings. And I'll usually just go hop around there and just do some takeoff and landings. Or I'll bring my jet boil and I'll make coffee out there in the field with my, my camping chair and just kind of sit there and uh, enjoy the peace, the, the birds and the deer. And, um, and then I'll be able to come home like 8.30, uh, 9 o'clock and take the kids to school and, and do all that stuff. So I do most of my cub flying early, early in the morning. What are your future plans in aviation? Um, new planes, new locations? Um, so I, I would always like to keep the, the J3, but I, I more and more, uh, the more I take the J3 places, like camping trips, the more I realize uh, it, it is lacking in, in a useful load. So I'd like to keep this airplane, but I would like a, a Super Cub eventually. Uh, my wife is, probably doesn't like that idea too much. I, I think a, a Super Cub is probably in my future in the next couple years. I'm not gonna go any faster than the J3, but I can at least bring somebody and, and bring more than just a uh, 110. So that's, that's probably my, my future plan. I'd probably venture out more to like upstate New York, Maine, maybe down in Tennessee area, places like that where a little bit higher of density altitude, you know, just go find a, a random grass strip somewhere and, and camp there for the night would, would be the ultimate goal. And I, again, I could do it in this, but I could just do it by myself. So it's, it's more fun to share with people. Do you have any advice for aspiring pilots? The only advice, I guess, is uh, as far as if you're going to pursue aviation as a career, and I had to learn this the hard way, it's um, build bridges, don't burn them. The guy that's your first officer one day could very well be your, your captain a couple years down the road. So just, just be aware of that. I think that's, that's a big one. And you know, everyone's aviation journey is a lot different. Uh, it took me a, a really long time to get to where I am. And the aviation industry is really cyclical. And now it seems like you can go from your PPL to the left seat of a, of a Delta Boeing in just a couple of years, where a couple of years ago that, that, that process took much longer than a decade. So um, aviation is, is, like I said, very cyclical, and I wouldn't look at somebody else's path and be upset if yours doesn't emulate theirs, because everyone's path is a little different, so. Could you tell us maybe your favorite or your most memorable flight you've ever taken? I think well, one of the most memorable flights, I think I had gotten my tailwheel endorsement up at Andover Aeroflex. Uh, with Damien, who's a, a great, great instructor, great flight school. And I had about six, seven hours when I bought the Cub 
And I was too afraid to, to fly at home by myself, because uh, when in doubt, chicken out is kind of how I live my life when it comes to flying. But um, I remember the first time I, I paid someone to, to fly it up to South Jersey Regional, which is where I kept it originally. And I think my first flight um, by myself in the Cub was the most memorable because I was incredibly terrified. But I, you know, you kind of have to push yourself to be a little scared uh, in order to progress. So I remember taking off, and I was, you know, it was only me in the airplane, and it, it was cool because it came full circle. You know, it took me years and years to get to the point where I could have my own airplane. And I had it, and I was flying the Cub by myself, and I was slightly terrified because I hadn't flown a Cub solo, and I, you know, was in my new-to-me brand-new airplane. So I think that was, was one of my most memorable flights. And then um, shortly thereafter, I took my dad flying in the Cub, and my father hates flying. But of course, for me, he, you know, he came with, and we had a, we had a good flight. So that was my uh, second most memorable. And then probably just taking my kids flying is always, uh, always pretty memorable. I have four kids. So this obviously is not the ideal airplane, but uh, but it's still a lot of fun when they when they hop in the front with the door open. So, like, what do you love about flying the most? That keeps you. You do it for work. You do it for fun. And you've been doing it for a while. Uh, I think what I uh, love about flying the most is uh, as soon as you take off, whatever's going on in your in your home life or whatever's going on in the world politically, you know, whatever you want to call it, you're kind of not focused on any of that when you go flying. It's really just you in the airplane and you're flying around just looking at all the things on the ground, going to different airports, and your, your only focus, uh, should be your only focus, but it's really easy to just focus on, on flying the airplane. So no matter what's going on, when you're flying in the airplane, especially the Cub, you kind of become part of it and everything else just kind of zones out and you, you kind of, I know it sounds cheesy, but you become one with the airplane, it's kind of an extension of yourself and uh, you know, put on a good playlist open the door, and really at that point, nothing else matters. It's just you and the airplane um, flying around, and it's, it's, it's pretty cool. If I could buy any airplane in the world, it would probably be a Corsair or a Spitfire. Probably a Corsair would be, I don't think it'd fit in the hangar, but if I, if I won the lottery, I'd, I'd buy a Corsair. That would be my, my dream airplane right there. So when I got this airplane, it was shortly before COVID, and when COVID happened, everything, it was like peak COVID. Everything was shut down, and I said, ah, now would be a good time to, to take the Cub up the Hudson River. And I did that, and it was, it was eerie because I was, I remember going up to the Hudson River years ago, before 9-11 actually, and it was so busy, it was so many airplanes, so many helicopters, and I don't have ADS-B in this. So when I did it, I was a little concerned about the traffic, but I went really early in the morning, and I was the only person in the Hudson River. So it was, it was eerie, but it was great to have the whole river to myself. So that was cool to, to do that. And I, I did it twice in the Cub. Now if I were to do it, I'd probably do it maybe on an early Sunday morning uh, when there was less traffic. But um, that was a lot of fun to circle the statue with the door open. That, that, was, that was pretty cool. I'm sure you've got footage of that, right? That I do, yeah. yeah. I got I had cameras hanging all over the place. Uh, yeah, figured. I had, I had signed up for Instagram years back and then never really went on it. And then when I logged back in, um, it was bananas and I just never changed it. I don't know why I picked bananas at the time, but um, I think I originally went for banana and it took me like nine S's until it was available. So that's how I ended up with that. Could you talk a little bit more about the, the Cub, like what year it is, so uh, if you know any of the history? Yeah, kind of so it's a 1941 uh, J3F. It rolled off the factory floor with a, a Franklin motor. And in the 50s, they put a Continental A65. It's a Dash 8. There's, there's no starter in it, no electrical. It spent most of its life in South Carolina. And I ended up, it's a funny story how I got it. I had been looking on Barnstormers for years uh, just to kind of stay current with the market of Cubs. And I'd upgraded to Captain, and I had a little bit more money, and I just figured I would go ahead and just get an airplane without my wife knowing. I had mentioned to her that I wanted an airplane, and she kind of laughed it off, which was jokes on her. But um, this one popped up on Barnstormers, and I kept on seeing it, and I reached out to the guy, and uh, he was a, he's a Southwest mechanic that lives in Mallard's Landing in Georgia, which is a flying community. And I'd be going back and forth, and I was trying to get down there to see the airplane, and it just it wasn't working out. Um, and he said, hey, listen, I know you're interested in the airplane, but I have someone that's coming to look at it this week, and first one to put the deposit down gets the airplane. So I had hung up with him, and then literally a couple minutes later, a crew scheduling called, and they're like, hey, we have an open trip that needs a captain. Tomorrow, day one, you do one leg to Atlanta, and you're there for 20 hours. 
And it was, I mean, it was a sign. So I called them right mm -hmm. back. I said, hey, I'm going to be in Atlanta tomorrow morning at 9 for like 24 hours. Uh, and he said, all right, great, I'll pick you up. So he picked me up, spent the whole day with the airplane, going over the logs, went for a flight, and then I took a selfie of it, of me in the airplane, sent it to my wife and said, hey, I, I bought an airplane. She thought I was kidding, but uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? Um, so I bought the airplane. Uh, it was in August, and then I had it flown up in, it was probably the end of August. Yeah, it was, it was kind of funny how it happened, but, but here it is, so. Can you talk a little bit about where we are, about this airport, why you chose this airport, and what you like about it? Yeah, so this airport, uh, the Fly W Airport, has been around for uh, a really, really long time. You could find pictures online where they had constellations parked in the corner there. Um, there used to be two runways here. Uh, Piper used to do a lot of their ads in front of the, the big barn out there. There's a pool that's shaped like an airplane. So this is a, a really cool airport with a lot of history. Unfortunately, I don't know how much longer it's going to be around, because like most small airports um, around the country, they make, make more money by turning it into low-income housing. Uh, but for now, the airport is, is still here. And it's great, because this row of hangars is filled with a lot of great tenants. And I've become really good friends with, with all the people that live here. Um, and it's nice to come to the airport. Everyone's got their hangar open, they're barbecuing. Uh, my friend Al, who's actually in his hangar right now, is building a long easy. So it's, it's been cool to watch his airplane uh, turn into close, close enough being to ready to be flyable. But I've met a lot of great people here. It's a great airport, great community. And the management, Mindy, the manager, is the greatest airport manager you could hope for. Can you talk about your hangar a little bit? Obviously, you have a cool setup here. Yeah, so um, this is my hangar. It's something that uh, I envisioned a really long time ago. So when I did end up getting the hangar, I think I had it decorated within 48 hours because I was kind of collecting stuff that I knew would look cool in a hangar. And my wife's family's business, uh, they are antique um, art dealers. And every now and then they have old advertisements and marketing stuff. So like that gas pump there is an old uh, toy. Um, so I was able to pick up a lot of old antique stuff like that that I thought would, would look good in the hangar. So this is kind of my home away from home. And uh, it's a great spot to just come and, come and do some hangar flying and just hang out. Kind of ends up being the, um, the center of the hangar rows. Everyone kind of just comes here and we start grilling, uh, drink a couple beers after flying. Uh, and it's, it's become a, a pretty great spot. The swimming pool is cool, and actually the guy in the hangar right next to me, his great uncle, I believe, was one of the mason, masonry guys. I don't know what you call him, but he's the one that actually ended up being part of building the pool, so that's kind of cool, I guess. Now, that's the other thing about social media, too, is um, everyone's always posting their highlights, right, with flying and, and their aviation career and stuff. There's, there's a ton of stuff on social media that you don't see. The bad landings, the, the screw-up, stuff like that, so don't assume that Everything you see on, on social media is, is how it is all the time. You've got to take it with a grain of salt. So, so why, why is it important to share this type of flying with, with other people? I think, it's, I think it's important because I think as, uh, you, know, you, can't, you can't run away from technology, and I think we need to embrace it, and I think it's important. But I also think that you can't forget the real basic stick and rudder flying, not only because it makes you a better pilot, and if technology fails, you have that, but also because it's just it's a ton of fun. You know, the airplanes that are super advanced, they, you know, like a Cirrus is a great airplane to get you from point A to B, but it's not that great of an airplane to go fly around grass strips at 500 feet, just kind of enjoying the scenery. So um, I want people to, to know that they could still go out and do this type of flying too. And I think it makes you a, a much better pilot in, in more advanced airplanes. I fly with a ton of people in the Airbus and the guys and girls that fly tail draggers or that are still active in GA, they have, they're just, I don't want to say they're better stick and rudder pilots, but they'll, they'll use the rudder on a crosswind landing where most people in the Airbus, they don't even know the rudder's there and they don't use it. So it's, it's kind of funny. And you'll see people click off the autopilot and they're, you know, if I click off the autopilot, the auto thrust in the Airbus, people are like, oh, you know, what are you doing? And it's like, I'm just from flying the airplane, you know? So, so this is nice because it, it kind of gets you back to that type of flying. And why do you think it's important to, to just share get more people interested in aviation in general? I think it's, it's important just because I, I, you, know, you, you try to pass it on to, to others and pay it forward and just make sure that the younger generation is at the very least exposed to it. You know, let them know that it is available to them to come out and, and do this type of flying. 
and get involved. Because you talk to a lot of people and they just don't realize that you can go out and start taking flying lessons at your local flight school. They always assume you have to go to the military first or something like that. So just introduce it to them, let them, let them get to exposed to it, um, give them a pathway to, to do it if they're interested, and just let them know that it's not all automation and, and drones, uh, hopefully not in the future anyway, um, self-flying airplanes, that this stuff is still, still important and still accessible. A lot of people are like, oh, I can't believe you wake up at, at five in the morning or 4.30 in the morning to go, to go flying. And it's hard to put into words, and I try to do it with Instagram, right? But the, the beauty of taking off at, at sunrise with the door open in a cub, I mean, there's very few things, if, if any, that, that compare to how, how awesome uh, and, and therapeutic and not to sound cheesy, but it's pretty spiritual. You, you take off and the sun's coming up and there's like a low layer of mist and it's dead calm, nobody else is around. I mean, it's really, it's really hard to beat that. And uh, the cub is just the perfect airplane to do that in. And we're fortunate here in this area because there's a, a lot of farms, um, a lot of trees, and there's some rolling hills out in Pennsylvania. And it's just a really pretty area to, to go out there and do that. So it's, it's, it's worth it. It's tough waking up that early, but it is so worth it once you get up there. And then you, know, you land, and then your whole day kind of sets the tone for the whole day because you've had, you've had your alone time, you've had your therapy, and, uh, and go about your day just a little more relaxed, at least, at least for me, before the, the chaos of the day. All right, so Joe is such a cool guy. He's really down to earth. The stuff that he's producing is just beautiful to watch. Obviously, I'm partial to Cub stuff. Sure. I mean, to have a, a commercial pilot, a very successful commercial pilot who's you know spending so much time at the airport and having so much yeah. fun, it's really cool to see. It is cool to see that he, he still is immersed in his GA, general aviation, roots, and it's very encouraging to other folks. He's yeah. a he's a good photographer, you know, real strong. And he's a really neat guy. If anyone's met him in person, just a real super guy. And someone who's so knowledgeable in the commercial world, like you said, he's got a lot to teach us in the GA world. So yeah. I yeah. think it's great. And it's bananas. And just type in bananas, plural, add eight more S's on Instagram. <laughs> To visit with Joe, and we appreciate our uh, our video team grabbing him and coming back with an ace interview. All right. Hey, I think it's time to go flying. That's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk or wherever your podcasts are. All right. We'll see you. See you, Ian. Hangartalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.